Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Rights pervade and provide a paradigm for our progressive lexicon. Originating in a particular historical and social context in Europe, when the economic interests of the mercantile class demanded commensurate political power, rights have proved to be dynamic. From liberal bourgeois first-generation civil and political rights to second-generation economic and cultural rights to third-generation environmental rights, the rights rubric has expanded. While some have argued that economic rights are merely programmatic and even non-justiciable, they are inseparable and instrumental to effectuating civil and political rights. Rights inform and are determinative of each other. They also compete and conflict. For instance, the right to religion has competed with women's reproductive rights and the right to not be discriminated against for one's gender and sexuality. How do we decide the lines of demarcation, what rights to retain and what new ones to add, their justiciability and new rights violators and holders? Perhaps, as Sushma Rahman and William F. Schultz argue in their recently published book The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights, we take a constructivist view adapting the rights regime to new understandings of what a good society should be. To critics that decry this view, opining that fundamental rights continue to be denied to the vast majority of the world, and that focusing on new rights and even new rights holders, such as animals and nature, dilutes and detracts from the attainment of these fundamental rights for people, Rahman and Schultz astutely point out that rights are not a zero-sum game. Additionally, as rights inform each other, the development of new rights and violations, for instance, viewing corruption as a human rights violation per se, rather than being merely instrumental in denying rights to people, allows for easier enforcement of traditional human rights. While transgender persons continue to be discriminated against, denied bodily integrity, privacy, the right to health, and even the right to life, specific rights against forced gender assignment and two gender-affirming surgery would support rather than dilute their fundamental rights. For instance, the denial of gender-affirming surgery is also the denial of the right to bodily integrity and to health. Some may be skeptical of expanding human rights to non-humans, such as animals, nature and robots, but the recognition of new rights holders affirms rather than dilutes human rights. Providing rights to nature per se, for instance, relaxes standing rules and does not limit arguments to concrete anthropogenic interest. This in turn allows for more environmental wins in court and consequently a cleaner, thriving environment at a time when we face existential environmental crisis. Fundamentally, rights are about respecting other beings' personhood and allowing them to flourish and we cannot deny that we are the only beings. Recently, I spoke with Sushma Rahman about these concepts and more from her book with William F. Schultz, The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities demand new rights. Welcome to Gravity, Sushma. <laughs> Thank you so much. So how did you uh, get the idea for this book, which you co-authored with uh, William F. Schultz? How did it come about? First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your program. I've been a practitioner working in the nonprofit and then philanthropic sector. And in the last five and a half years, I've had the privilege of being at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, where I'm the executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. And so this opportunity to be both working in the field, supporting uh, movement building in the field, and then 
being in a position to reflect, research, and understand trends made me really think about the human rights movement, how far we've come, but also where we're headed. Similarly, my co-author Bill Schultz, who was the former executive director of Amnesty International USA and as a Unitarian Universalist minister, has a significant experience uh, running human rights organizations and felt that we are very often mired in the here and now in today's challenges. And what we need to do is really look to the future, to the horizon, to say, what are some of the issues that are upon us and how do we best tackle them? And Bill and I have collaborated and worked together in the past, so it was a logical um, way to work together on this book. Right. And you mentioned in your book that rights are dynamic and that we have progressed from initially civil and political rights to adding economic and social rights and then third generation environmental rights. And you also mentioned, and this I thought was very interesting, the virtuous cycle of law and culture, how one informs and reinforces the other so that changes in culture have led to developments in law and in turn how developments in law have changed culture. So how does the enactment of new rights reinforce cultural acceptance of different lifestyles and identities? Yeah, that's a big question. And I think (laughs) that, uh, you know, very often we like to segment things into specific buckets or disciplines. Even this whole examination of rights as different generations is a way to segment things that in fact are quite fluid, interdependent, connected to each other. And so there are uh, times when you see um, changes in norms and values within societies then shaping what happens um, on the legislative front. And in other cases, you see legislation, uh, lawmaking, um, policymaking really uh, trying to influence culture. So I think that, um, you know, we have to bear in mind both dynamics and think about Uh, When do we use uh, norms change education, bringing people together to push certain uh, rights agendas? Um, And when do we think about um, uh, development in law to do that? So, for example, let's just think about uh, rights of uh, LGBTQ individuals and communities, right? So around the world, you've seen persecution of individuals um, based on their gender identity. Um, and so, you know, there may be cases where you may think about uh, certain rights that then can help to catalyze movements and then shape, um, you know, perceptions, right, of people uh, in communities and where local organizations then can then think of collaborating with other organizations in other countries or with UN special rapporteurs or, um, you know, other global civil society bodies to really push those agendas. So I, again, I see it as this uh, interconnected um, virtuous cycle. You just mentioned the discrimination faced by LGBTQIA communities around the world, and we have the right to health, we have the right to life, we have the right against gender and sex discrimination. So do we focus on the enforcement of these rights for LGBTQIA communities around the world, or are their specific needs not currently being fully redressed by current international human rights law, and that we need the enactment of new specific rights to redress their grievances rather than focus on the enforcement of fundamental rights that they're continuing to be denied? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I think you need both. I think you do need the enforcement of existing uh, laws and policies and rights that have been adopted. But you also need to think about where are the gaps, because very often uh, mainstream movements that are advocating for specific rights don't always think about uh, uh, gender and sexual minorities or racial minorities or indigenous groups. And so I think it doesn't have to be an either or. And I think that's part of what our book tries to do is to push a more expansive notion of this not necessarily being a zero sum game, that we can think about rights in this context of sort of securing existing rights and, and, and strengthening them but also saying, where are the gaps? And just like, you know, maybe 50, 100 years ago, we didn't think of women's rights necessarily in the same context uh, as we do today. I do think in this particular area, we can think about uh, the new rights that might be needed, and those could complement uh, existing rights that uh, need to be reinforced. In talking about these enforcement gaps of the current international human rights regime, rather than focusing just on new rights, and new rights holders, as you very eloquently go through in your book, from animals to robots to the environment. But what about new rights violators? Some corporations are egregiously violating rights around the world. And currently under international law, there seems to be no established cause against a corporation. And should we not also focus on new rights violators, such as corporations? Absolutely. I think this has been, um, you know, definitely on the radar of the human rights movement and uh, institutions for a long time. When you think about specific sectors like mining or apparel industry and the violation of, you know, um, labor rights or environmental rights. But in today's context, just think about technology companies and the role of technology in society and the spread of disinformation and hate speech is occurring on technological platforms and how best to ensure the rights of um, uh, specific groups that are, you know, targets of hate speech or discrimination. So I do think this is a pressing issue that needs to be addressed um, in the near future. It, it also affects a range of other areas, right? It's not just technology companies, but uh, increasingly we need to think about um, rights violators beyond the state. Right. I vehemently agree. So privacy has been enshrined as a fundamental human right. In fact, it's one of the first generation of civil and political rights. And as you've very pertinently noted in your book, it's not only an important right in itself, but it's the canary in the mine. And we seem to be inviting this uh, incursion into our homes through various gadgets and effective computing. I mean, we're living in Zubov surveillance society. And how do we need to adequately address privacy incursions from new technologies and ensure that new technologies do not violate our rights? You know, in the book, we, we lay out several scenarios where uh, both the commodification of our data by companies, as well as the surveillance of our individual personal lives by governments, you know, has significant implications for us being able to secure the right to privacy. And I think uh, a lot of times individuals seem to think, well, I have nothing to hide, so why do I need to worry? Or something to that effect, right? Or I've done nothing wrong. But the reality is that the um, the right to privacy is actually a, a core right. And people often think that this is a luxury or 
you know, something that you may not have to worry about as much. But I do think that, you know, we're increasingly creating surveillance societies around the world. And this is not just in the West. This is also happening in China, in, you know, in countries around the world, really, that are um, adopting these technologies very often to surveil their own citizens. And uh, and so part of what we have to really think about is, uh, you know, these solutions don't often rest on an individual level, right? So we might be tempted to say, I'm going to delete a particular social media app from my phone. And that's terrific. But I think this connects to your earlier question around rights violators and how to um, handle them. But I, I think it also connects to a range of other rights, such as, for example, the freedom to associate and assemble, freedom of expression. Um, it, you know, it connects to the ability of people in the digital public sphere to be able to uh, participate in peaceful protest and to hold their governments accountable without fear of surveillance and possible detention. And um, so, you know, there are different ways we can think about this. Um, you know, one, one possibility is thinking about, um, you know, ways in which uh, consumers can opt uh, in versus opt out, right? So like very often, you know, we, we just accept all of these privacy disclosures. We have no idea what they mean and we just accept them to use a particular product. And, you know, if there's a way to ensure greater consistency where you're automatically opted out and then the opt-in is really on an as-needed basis or, you know, one um, unfortunate effect or, you know, it's really a core feature in all of this is, issues of discrimination and, you know, how do we think about algorithmic bias and, you know, integrating um, algorithmic justice within our notion of the right to privacy, because um, very often the groups who are most marginalized in, in, you know, in sort of our real world are far more targeted in the digital world. Right. And they also have uh, less of the means. So one of the ways that these products are advertised that then have a digital marker, a, a digital dictionary of everything that you do is uh, that it's convenient. So it's very convenient to have Alexa in your home and all this stuff. And the more means that you have, the more time and resources that you have, the less you're in need of one, having these surveillance applications and two, the more you're able to say no, right? And I think that part of the problem of surveillance targeting is that these effective computing applications, it's increasing and entrenching inequality in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think increasingly what we are seeing is that algorithms are being used in um, everything from the criminal justice system, sentencing to, um, you know, bails, decisions about whether somebody gets bail or parole, um, you know, to other kinds of things that appear neutral and based on past historical facts. But very often the data points that are sourced are ones that are based on uh, historical patterns of racial discrimination. And so we really have to question whether we are moving from one system of oppression to another. And this one is more opaque uh, and it's very often hard to unpack uh, you know, how these systems were developed and um, what kind of data is being stored, who it's being shared with, and how decisions are being made. So, you know, it's really, really important. I think there are movements that are increasingly looking at this, you know, with um, Amnesty and uh, other organizations that are working on facial recognition ban campaigns, uh, the movement for Black Lives, 
and others who have basically called on, um, you know, both companies as well as the government to uh, challenge the use of such surveillance technologies. It's, of course, harder in, you know, in countries where there isn't freedom of speech, where there isn't a robust civil society, where, you know, specific communities are being targeted or being uh, surveilled or being detained in, in large-scale ways using such technologies. But in countries where um, civil society does exist, I think um, this is one of the key concerns for organizers to really think about how do we address um you know, the use of the algorithm. Yeah, and I'd like to go a bit further into that because on one side, it's arguable that it's more efficient and it's more neutral to have this algorithm decide rather than having human emotions, you know, pervade a decision and so forth and therefore human biases. But as uh, you've noted, we have massive problems with the use of uh, algorithmic decision-making. And it's really just a garbage-in, garbage-out scenario where there's a problem of confirmation bias and it's perpetuating discrimination. But there's also a democratic deficit, right? Because it obfuscates decision-making. The algorithms are proprietary. But even if we uncover that veil somehow, we have the problem that we don't really understand how these neural networks work because the volume of data is just so large for any human to audit. So um, how do we adapt to both problem that corporations are owning this and we might have to uh, have more transparency, but also that we might not really, even with transparency, figure out what's going on? Yes, absolutely. Um, So I think there's really a need for members of the public, as well as human rights organizations, just be more multifaceted in our approach. So, for example, in the last, uh, you know, several months in the wake of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and several other African-Americans, you know, by either uh, the police or, you know, vigilantes, um, you know, we've seen a rise of um, demands around defunding the police. And I wrote a piece in Foreign Policy that analyzed how the use of surveillance technologies could simply def- uh, replace the police in some instances if we are not being um, uh, watchful. And that could actually result in um, other forms of discrimination that perhaps might be less uh, obvious to track, but that are equally heinous. And so the challenge upon us is to keep track of all of these different efforts. You know, immigration is another area where there's increased uh, turn to algorithmic decision making. And so, you know, if you're asylum seeker or a refugee and you are faced with certain questions where, you know, the answers um are, you know, raise a red flag, but you don't know what they are. There isn't a recourse. There isn't a person who you could turn to. So I think, you know, this affects vulnerable people in a variety of settings. And so uh, it's incumbent upon us to, you know, sort of, again, look at um, what you talked about earlier, the rights violators, um, and looking at both the obvious sources, but also the less obvious ones. I wonder whether a more visceral concern uh, relating to algorithmic decision-making is that we increase and entrench mediated relations, relations that perpetuate distance and allow for decision-making that we would never do eye-to-eye, person-to-person, but we constantly do role-to-role, soldier to military target and so forth. So we reduce people to numbers with no soul or common sense 
at all involved. In particular, should not this lack of empathy and common sense, which cannot be readily programmed, if it can be programmed at all, should we not therefore prohibit the use of at least, at least as a minimum, autonomous weapons in war? Yes, absolutely. I do think that needs to be the case. But I also want to just point out that there are many who would say that uh, algorithmic decision-making would actually uh, improve decision-making. And that's actually not the case. Um, but in in prior instances, it wasn't necessarily that just because you saw eye-to-eye or person-to-person that decisions were made in a better way because of the prevalence of bias or um you know, other forms of discrimination that could have occurred between the decision maker, whether it's a it's a judge or it's a police officer or it's an immigration officer, um, you know, versus the asylum seeker or the parolee. So, um, you know, I do think that um, the, the current system just um, repackages that bias in different ways because of uh, taking uh, historical data that it then uses. So um, I think these are just complex issues that you know many people have begun working on. And I do think that what's really imperative is that need for sort of cross-sector, cross-disciplinary conversations so that the technologies and 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 the business of the technology is not purely driving decision making. And that civil society, academia, others have a seat at the table in order to ensure that um, we have standards and that we ensure, um, you know, a more um, really like as we think about what is a good society, how do we ensure that t- technology is used for good for the broader public and not just for those who are uh, already wielding power. Speaking of new technologies and uh, entrenching power structures, uh, you discuss in your book clustered regulatory interspace short palindromic repeats or CRISPR technology. Uh, Assuming these technologies can in the future enhance intelligence and other characteristics, they may provide a biological basis to and even justification for social stratification and thus may permanently entrench a genetic underclass. How can we employ the human rights regime to prevent such a dystopian future? And how do we decide on the demarcating line between the healing and enhancement features so that we can employ these technologies to effectuate the right to health and life for those in need of them? Yeah, these, you know, you've raised some great questions. And I will say that as the chapter was being written, there have probably been a lot more developments that have been underway. And we really don't know what the future decades will bring. So we painted a particular landscape, but new questions will continue to emerge around the boundaries of life um, and dignity. And we need to think about why a human rights lens is going to be increasingly important because it emphasizes bodily integrity and dignity, the realization of capabilities, non-discrimination, and respect for privacy and autonomy. And so, you know, as we think ahead, we can draw upon the work that has been done to date by different bodies, um, the Universal Declaration of the Human Genome and Human Rights. Um, there's been, a, a, a you know, work by, the UN- by UNESCO and other entities um, Sheila Jasonoff, who's a you know world re- world-renowned expert in this area, who's at Harvard, advocates for the establishment of a global observatory for gene editing, 
as a way to help determine whether the potential of science can be better steered by the values and priorities of society. I'm quoting from her book. Um, and I think that's a very important approach. Um, and I do think that the human rights approach is really critical because millions of people around the world have still not attained the right to health. We talked about the right to health earlier, but that's not just the access to health care, but also the underlying determinants of health, like safe drinking water and sanitation, safe food, and and so on. And you have, you know, uh, millions of people at risk of starvation due to famine. Um, you have countries that are plagued by diarrheal disease, malaria, other uh, challenges. And so the reality is that uh, technological advances, like what we've talked about, can hold a lot of promise to improve the human condition or they could simply um, accelerate the divide that exists between the rich and the poor, the health rich and the health poor, um, and that really results in uh, people with resources being able to purchase you know, better health options. So it's not that we want to stop this sort of research, but it's just that we want to ensure that we have the oversight, the accountability, and the human rights lens that comes to bear on this type of work uh, in the future to ensure that both, um, you know, the current generation, but also future generations can benefit from such uh, advancements, but that we ensure that we don't accelerate existing divides. How do current rights regimes address ownership and access to a person's DNA? And what is necessary to ensure that we have adequate control over who has access to our DNA and for what purpose? Yeah, so we touch on this in um, in the chapter on uh, developments in the biosciences, where we talk about the use of what's called uh, shed DNA. So uh, basically, when um, you know there are instances where you may leave behind um, some tissue or hair, or there's something from your body that is accessible, right? And and then the question becomes, can that be used? Um, within the context of uh, an investigation. And so, you know, we might think that this is something some of us may not care if it involves uh, catching a criminal, let's say, right? And others might say, we don't think it's a good idea. And so I think part of what we try and do is uh, lay out some of the scenarios because of the advancements in technology that are possible. So um, we lay out of the book the example of the Golden State Killer in the U.S. who was tracked down exclusively through the use of uh, shed DNA and then um, uh, an ancestry testing site, which just raises a, raises a lot of questions about how um, you know information is used and access. But then we also talk about um, Argentina, where you know if um, there was a, a situation where you know there were children who were um, uh, basically abducted and um, their parents were disappeared or tortured or, or murdered and and hundreds of children were raised without knowing that this had happened to them or that true identities and then you know we talk about the fact that many of these living disappeared actually didn't want to have their DNA collected because it would upend their life the person who they thought was their parent is actually not their parent and his was the first, uh, there was one case of this person and his was the first shed DNA case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Argentina. And this person said that, you know, he was opposed to the shed DNA test because 
um, you know, it was a violation of his dignity and bodily integrity. So this raises, you know, several questions as to whether you own your own DNA and can somebody else use it or not. And, um, you know, and in the U.S., um, uh, the the Supreme Court ruled in Maryland versus King that an individual arrested for a crime, even if they're presumed innocent, can be subject to a mandatory DNA sample. So, you know, in some cases we might think of the use of uh, DNA in a way that's consistent with the notion of a good society. In other cases, there may be questions that are raised where we really think about what are the guidelines that need to be set and, um, you know, what are the ways in which we need to think about the ways in which different technologies that come together could shape the ways in which um, our individual information is accessed and, and stored and then shared with others. Right. I mean, the Innocence Project uses it to release people, right. and, but we don't want, say, our health insurer maybe getting uh, access to uh, DNA and knowing that we have certain genes and then not wanting to insure us, for instance. Um, but maybe we could solve that by public health. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and oftentimes what happens is uh, we just have to be careful that, you know, what happens initially then has a mission creep. So, for example, um, Social Security in the U.S. was initially designed to track the earning history of workers, right? And now it's become something we use basically to identify people in the U.S. So oftentimes programs that are tracking certain sorts of information can then expand in scope and in purpose and in the duration. And so you want to just be mindful of that. Um, more recently, the U.S. government separated thousands of children um, from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then the government was administering DNA tests to verify identities and relationships. But the problem with that, well, the children should never have been separated. Seeking asylum is not a crime. Um, but then all of that data then gets collected and could be used to conduct lifelong surveillance of these children and their parents and, and other family members. So it just raises a lot of questions about how is this information used? What is it used for? How is it stored? What else is it used for? And, you know, we may again think of, you know, we talked earlier about um, racial biases and algorithms. And in this case, like DNA databanks can also perpetuate these kinds of biases. So, for example, if there's a DNA databank in a particular state that includes people who are not just convicted of serious crimes, but also everyone who is arrested, it could lead to a larger proportion of certain groups being included because they are often arrested at a disproportionate rate. So we just want to be mindful that these sorts of programs that might appear race neutral um, and objective actually are magnifying certain uh, societal disparities and, and dis historical discrimination patterns. Right. And you have a whole chapter on uh, corruption, uh, the use of public power for private gain in your book. And that is an instrument of human rights violation now, but is not yet established as a human rights violation. You note that corruption is prevalent across the world and affects the poor more than the rich, thus contributing to social stratification. May you please elaborate on how corruption acts to deny rights to persons and why the most effective way to address these violations is to establish corruption per se as a rights violation. Yeah, thank you so much. So this um, we thought was an important issue. You know, a lot of people have spoken to economic rights and the need to advance economic rights, and we completely agree. But we thought that corruption really cuts across the range of different generations of rights. 
and was important enough to be uh, considered on its own. And I'll describe, um, you know, in, in four ways that we could think about it in, in terms of human rights, because it's often seen as an economic crime or a financial crime or maybe a loss to the economy. But why is it connected to human rights? Well, first of all, it affects the poor far more than the rich, and it limits the ability of the poor to exercise uh, a range of economic and political rights and to realize their full human dignity. So very often, you know, the poor have to pay bribes to be able to just get basic goods and services that others take for granted, and very often it's a much larger um, percentage of their income. It hinders the capacity of the state to garner and spend revenues on the basic needs of citizens, which then affects the ability of the state to meet the economic, social, cultural rights of their people. And these are the rights that are really essential to a good society. So again, if, um, you know, if a government is supposed to be set spending money on uh, clean water or a public health system, but some of that money is siphoned off, then, then affects uh, really the ability of the most poor to access those sorts of public goods. Third, the sources of illicit money are sometimes tied to illicit activities that then are detrimental to the rights, security, and dignity of millions of people who are already very vulnerable. Just think of labor or sex trafficking, for example. And finally, and perhaps the most important point, is that the corrupt design of institutions, laws, and policies often benefit the powerful at the expense of those who lack power. So these are ways in which a human rights lens can be uh, brought to bear when we think about how to tackle corruption. So we can say that that's all great. Why can't we just think about it as, a, as just a good thing we should do as opposed to thinking about um, having something that is really a freedom from corruption as a human right. And, you know, corruption is a particularly challenging um, issue to tackle. So um, uh, e economists Ray Fishman and Miriam Golden have talked about uh, corruption is equilibrium framework, which is why it's so difficult to tackle corruption. And I quote from them, where basically corruption happens as a result of interactions among individuals in which, given the choices others make, no one person can make herself better off by choosing any other course of action. So it makes it really hard because there's a certain equilibrium stage where no one person's action can necessarily change the outcome. And so you really have to think about this in sort of a systemic lens, right? And there's a lot of efforts uh, underway already. For example, efforts by groups like Transparency International and so on to think about how to provide um, greater scrutiny. Uh, you know, there's different journalist efforts to expose um, corruption, global corruption, the Panama Papers, for example. And all of these are, are really, really important. Uh, and technological tools as well are being used to sort of really think about how to, um, you know, uh, unveil all of this. But very often these approaches don't always address the types of extortion and oppression that poor people face on a daily basis, right? Because um, it, it, it often uh, focuses on these larger scale um, efforts. And these technologies can sometimes empower the middle class or the affluent who can report on these acts of corruption and extortion, which then pushes the burden of petty corruption even further onto the poor. So, you know, if you think about why would we need a human right to be free of corruption, um, we can think about what is it that people oppose, right? Like some people might say, 
um, that a financial approach might be more effective than a human rights approach because everyone can agree to, um, you know, a fiscal approach, whereas there's a lot of countries where, you know, uh, human rights language may be questionable. And the financial argument is an important one, but you could use the financial argument and the human rights argument, because the reality is that both can, can reinforce the other. And, um, you know, others might say that freedom of corruption is really something you want as a means to another end, right? Like it's a way to get to something else. And that's true. But I think also the, um, you know, being able to live in a corruption-free society is is uh, important in and of itself. And it's it can help you realize your full range of your capabilities and be able to exercise a, a range of rights. So, um, you know, just like many of the other rights we've talked about in the book, why would we call it a right as opposed to just an idea or maybe a law or a policy? Because when it's proclaimed as a human right by the international community, then there's it's something that cannot be just dismissed, you know, as like one NGO's pet project or somebody's um, idiosyncratic idea. It really is a feature of the good society that has been uh, you know, sort of approved by the world community. And so that then helps activists on the ground um, who are working on trying to hold governments accountable. And increasingly, we're seeing anti-corruption crusaders are under threat, environmental defenders and others. Um, very often they're killed or attacked or imprisoned. And so having something like this to rely on could, again, allow them the ability to appeal to UN bodies or international courts. It um, allows them to be part of a kind of a broader uh, international effort, um, as opposed to just sort of working on this at a domestic level. It would help ensure that whatever uh, domestic remedies they're seeking are aligned with what is happening at a global stage. And, um, you know, it could you know, not just benefit people who are working on anti-corruption efforts, but would also help people who are working on other sorts of economic and um, civil and political rights. In your book, you argue for a revolutionary take on human rights to progress the latter by removing the former qualifier. We now know that we're not the only sentient beings. Animals and plants are sentient in the sense they problem solve, have kinship and can suffer. You have proposed a multi-tiered system of animal rights as the best path forward for a good society. May you please explain your multi-tiered animal rights system to our audience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, our book has provoked different sorts of reactions from different folks. And uh, <laughs> I guess you're doing something right when people have been worked up. But there are particular chapters that seem to have provoked, uh, you know, strong feelings. And it, it just depends on the person, I guess. And I think for me, um, having grown up in India, raised as a vegetarian, it didn't seem as much of a stretch. But I think for a lot of people, it just seems absurd to think about expanding the notion of human rights to uh, non-human animals. And there are a lot of people who are just either skeptical or outright opposed. And so we're not necessarily talking about affording the full range of rights to animals. Um, but, you know, what we're talking about is thinking about, uh, you know, we offer, again, you know, a sort of an approach. But this is something that I think, again, you know, like many of the other issues we lay out is subject to 
public discussion, deliberation, consensus building, and so on. So, you know, the way we lay it out is um, to think about um, rights for animals that builds on the capabilities approach that we described earlier, which is drawn on the work of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum and others. In, um, and that work is really in relation to the rights of humans. And so we say, first, we need not accord rights to all animals. Uh, we need not accord all rights to those rights claiming animals. We need not in all circumstances apply equal rights to rights claiming animals as we do to rights claiming humans. And, um, you know, it's often to think about the ways in which humans mistreat animals, uh, ways in which we think about how um, such abuse is commonplace in everything from, oh, you know, um, the ways in which uh, food is prepared or, you know, animals are used in factory farms, um, the way they're treated um you know, in terms of, uh, there's an example in the book in terms of um, a retired television star. And, and so, you know, part of what we're thinking about is that animals have feelings. They are sentient beings. Um, they have a certain consciences. They have the ability to experience pain. And so if we believe that we are part of a good society, we need to think about how we treat uh, animals and that they have entitlements to flourishing in some ways and um, they are deserving of certain protections um, in addition to, uh, you know, just being our companions or, you know, the sources of food for many people. Mm. And following on from animals, I'm sure if you got such a vociferous reaction uh, for animals, um, then you, your chapter on robots, I suspect, might have had the same. So should robots gain electronic personhood if they retain sentience? And who decides when they do and what should these rights be? Yeah, again, this is a very broad and complex issue. And I think, again, you know, uh, the way uh, our book has laid this out, the technology is advancing so rapidly that, you know, we can't possibly predict everything that, you know, needs to be thought about, right? So uh, we, again, mm -hmm. lay out a scenario and lay out certain arguments um, and, uh, you know, think about how, in, how to approach the issue. And this is a pretty large and complex topic, and it, it definitely is something that, um, you know, has... Um, you know, cause concern. But I, I, I do think that the, there's a couple of different issues. One is the issue of uh, autonomous weaponry. And, you know, we touched on that earlier. And then the other is really the, the issue of using using robots in, you know, daily activities on an increasing basis. And, you know, this is, again, might seem like very far-fetched to many of us, right, where we are completely unaware of this. Um, but as we move to the future, we may think about ways in which these uh, entities might be doing tasks for us more and more in ways in which we are not exposed to nowadays. And so, you know, I think part of what we are trying to do is, um, you know, sort of lay out this scenario and lay out for people uh, the arguments to um, ensure that we are, as we think of this good society, and having entities um, that are non-human entities that have either some level of consciousness or um, some level of, you know, uh, functionality, some level of sentience, how do we interact with um, and how do we treat them? And that's sort of, you know, that's important to think about.
Yeah, I quite like your argument in the book that if we have social robots and we treat them poorly, that this might desensitize us and lead to uh, actions uh, that we might not necessarily like. For instance, if you uh, beat a robot that looks like a human being, maybe that's just a stepping stone to violence against humans and so forth. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, perspective because I have to tell you, at first I was skeptical. Robots being sentient, I don't know. Isn't that just a program? And that particular point I thought was very informative. Yes, absolutely. And I think <laughs> that also connects with really the next chapter on um, the rights of nature, right? Uh, which yeah. also caused quite a bit of a kerfuffle with some folks. Although I have to say, this is something, again, that, you know, in many countries in Latin America, um, the, the thought of nature having uh, rights and having sort of, uh, you know, often being, uh, you know, a goddess or a, a spiritual being or um, you know, an entity to to worship or to venerate is it's just not uh, it's it's quite common. So uh, you know, again, this may be seen as um, uh, challenging for many to think about, but uh, you know, in in many contexts, the the rights of nature is paramount, and from that derives you know human life and 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 then human dignity and rights. Right. Now, with human rights, we're going to have to litigate them in court, right? Or at least on some international level and in court. So then the issue is, how do we attribute rights to entities such as soil that aren't easily demarcated for a justiciable personality? You know, how will such rights differ from recognizing the currently anthropocentric right to a clean environment and achieve stronger environmental protection? Yeah. So again, I think you could think of, uh, you know, hierarchies, right? So it's not necessarily that um, you, you could think of sort of ecosystems and then you can think of hierarchies just like we broke it out for animals where you can think about ways in which um, you can address the rights of nature where it's not necessarily drilled down to every little rock or particle, but it's, you know, the protection of nature. And, and you know, you could have, um, for example, think about, um, you know, if there's a child that's, um, you know, being trafficked and you might have, uh, you know, um, an adult, right, who is, um, you know, working with the child uh, to help the child or to represent the child's interest. You could think of um, guardians of nature, right, forests or oceans or rivers. And I think that is the case in many places like um, in the Amazon or elsewhere where, um, you know, people realize the sanctity of nature, but also recognize that they are you know, the guardians and the caretakers of nature. And so, uh, you know, if we look at Ecuador, for example, it's one of the most biologically diverse countries on earth, where they have so many different species of animals and um, and uh, plants, and they also have rich mineral wealth. And very often there's conflict between environmental activists and indigenous communities on the one hand, and governments and, you know, oil and gas and mining companies and so on. And Ecuador has really kind of carved out in, within its constitution in alignment with this concept of harmonious coexistence, um, the right to respect for nature. And so, you know, I think that's really important. And so has Bolivia in terms of thinking about the rights of Mother Earth. And so, um, you know, I think that um, there are ways in which one can think about um you know, how to do this and and then thinking about, you know, how um, 
community organizations and uh, indigenous organizations, environmental groups can really act as stewards um, for nature. Mm. So rights inform each other, and you've said this before. For instance, the right to education informs the right of free speech, the right to health, the right to life. But rights also compete and conflict. For instance, religious and cultural rights can conflict with women's rights, uh, including reproductive rights. And as you've addressed in your book, animal rights can conflict with environmental rights, for instance, with respect to the culling of invasive species. Uh, And these will have to be demarcated and litigated, which means being resolved by the bench. How do we address these conflicts and ensure that we do so in a democratic manner? Yeah, you know, when we started talking earlier, we talked about the virtuous cycle of law and culture. And I just come back to that, where I think that, you know, part of being part of a, you know, good society is having a a pluralistic public sphere where one can um, discuss and uh, debate and uh, advance certain causes and engage with others, both like-minded and different-minded and then think about how to shape uh, decision-making for the future. And, um, you know, the, the second point I'll make is that there are very often people who are anti-rights, but who will use the rights language to cloak their um, disdain for rights. And so they will claim that space. So that is something where I think we have to guard against to ensure that, you know, um, you do not use your uh, your claim for a so-called religious right to, let's say, uh, prevent uh, service to a person who happens to be a, you know, of a religious or sexual minority group, or uh, you know, uh, something like that. So, uh, you know, so I I do think that's something that we need to watch out for, and that is happening, you know, in many places where people use the rights and freedoms language to basically undermine others. And so in that case, I would say that, you know, rights are indivisible and, you know, they're not necessarily a zero-sum game. And in many cases, we can think about how do we think about this good society in ways that uplift others in addition to uh, preserving my own rights and dignity. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. You have to look at the power dynamics that Uh, established a so-called cultural trait. And uh, there's a quote attributed to Gandhi. I mean, many are, right? (laughs) But he said, we must not, I'm paraphrasing here, we must not drown, but we should swim in the waters of tradition. And uh, yes, we should take what is good and not what is holding other people down. Now, some people argue that adding new rights may dilute the fundamentality of others and divert also from the enforcement of human rights at a time when they're increasingly threatened. What do you say to critics that um, argue that we should focus on eradicating slavery, torture, and sex and gender discrimination in the world because it's still going on, right, Um, rather than the enactment of new rights. Yeah, so, you know, this is something we actually tackle head-on at the beginning of the book where we say that, you know, um, very often, you know, People say that, you know, we should focus on these because, look, you know, uh, think of all of the people who are critiquing rights and are attacking them and are, you know, authoritarians. And they're going to just kind of scoff at this expansion of rights into areas that are, you know, seen as frivolous or irrelevant. And in fact, 
those people are completely against all kinds of rights. So <laughs> they're, they're not going to be anyway protecting um, people from being tortured or trafficked. So I think that that is something that we should just not worry about. I do think that uh, in practice, you know, every every place has limited resources. And so you want to think about how you allocate those resources. But I really can't see how we could say that we're going to focus on, um, you know, ensuring that we end torture or end trafficking, but we're not going to address the needs of, you know, um, let's just say women or, you know, LGBTQ groups or address the right to privacy when all of these rights are in fact interconnected. Um, very often you see the violation of one right connected to another right. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples. One is, let's just say the right to privacy. You know, um, uh, trans people are deeply affected by um, this issue of right to privacy and, and surveillance technologies, um, but they're also affected in other ways in terms of um, attacks on their right to life and so on. And so, you know, there are interconnections between these different rights and people's abilities to access them. And so I think that, you know, uh, we definitely want to ensure we end, uh, you know, some of these gross violations of human rights. But if we are not prepared to deal with the new issues that are emerging on the horizon because of these rapid technological and scientific advances, then human rights will really be seen as irrelevant and we're not going to be able to make the advancements we need on any front. So when humans have not achieved their basic rights, including basic civil and political rights, or for that matter, even a basic standard of living, for what good are civil and political rights if you can't effectuate them because you're denied shelter, clean water, sanitation, mm -hmm. food? Should we not focus on achieving these fundamental needs for our humans before we ascribe rights to animals and plants? Or is the latter part and parcel of a new vision for the future where we live in a more equitable world so that ascribing rights to non-humans actually fortifies human rights? Yeah, absolutely. I do think, uh, you know, one of the uh, great challenges upon us is thinking about, um, you know, the um, challenges facing the environment. And even from a purely selfish human perspective, the, um, the strain on the environment due to climate change, um, you know, other issues really requires us to think about the rights of nature in, in different ways. And it's, it's, it's both in and of itself important, but also important in terms of its um, interrelationship with, uh, you know, human existence in the future. Um, you know, another big issue which we haven't really touched on is uh, migration. And, you know, we see more people on the move today than any time since the Second World War. And I think 70 years ago, you know, we saw a rise of people who were moving because of persecution or war. And now increasingly, it's a climate-induced displacement, um, you know, other kinds of conflict, um, you know, agricultural loss. Um, there's a lot of internal migration with internally displaced people. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, thinking about this broader framework can help us address some of the fundamental needs. And, and, and so the needs of people who are migrating um, around food, around shelter, around the some of the basic conditions that make them vulnerable, if we can secure um, the um, societies in which they're living, uh, make them more food secure, you know, focus on both human security as well as environmental sustainability, 
then I do think we can think about this as not a zero-sum game, but that w- as one that is complementary and coexisting. So rights were enacted in a particular historical, socioeconomic and political context in a Western liberal bourgeois construct. You argue in your book that we need new rights and new rights holders, including non-human rights holders, and I would add we need new rights violators, including corporations, uh, and that we also need to view the rights regime from a positive perspective of actuation. Otherwise, by providing equal rights on a stratified society, we might entrench the status quo. So with all these needed changes, are we merely in need of renovation or are we in need of a foundational change? And if the latter, should we not simply design a new house? one from a purely 21st century perspective? And if not, why not? Why continue with the human rights paradigm or, or the rights paradigm? So I would say uh, you need a renovation and you need a new uh, components, right? And I think that's what the book does. So we're not necessarily one of the people who criticizes the human rights movement. There are many criti- critics within the movement and people in academia and so on who say like they haven't done enough and it's not been effective on this front or it's too Western. So we're not coming from that angle. We believe that there has been significant work that has occurred over the past 70 years, but that at this point we need to both revisit the progress made to date given all of the changes that are upon us and then also think about new uh, possibilities. So we're not necessarily starting from scratch. Right. <laughs> We're not starting from scratch. And, and also, well, there's many grassroots movements that use the, it's not just a regime from above, right? It is yeah. uh, many, many grassroots movements use rights terminology. Yes, absolutely. And so when they talk about rights terminology, they are embracing it for their community or their cause or even, um, you know, the natural world around them. They're not, they they often do connect with broader global movements, but not always. And so, you know, we, and I would say it's not necessarily just a Western liberal bourgeois construct that in fact, if you think of rights, it's not just coming out of the post-war period. You can think about the movements against colonialism that occurred in the global South, very much in this rights tradition where you had uh, people who are oppressed for, you know, decades, centuries, who came together to demand for freedom and to think about how to construct uh, new societies, um, you know, with political opportunity, economic opportunity, um, you know, sort of self-governance. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I would look uh, to those sorts of movements, both within um, the global South, but also within uh, communities that have been uh, historically oppressed in the global north, like look at the civil rights movement, for example. So I'd say that the rights tradition, is, you know, it's, it's longer than uh, recent times. Thank you very much for your time today, Sushma, and for your insight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Alexandra. Um, The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights by William F. Schultz and Sushma Raman is available at Harvard University Press or anywhere you get your books. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.